Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. This is our second episode recorded in the year 2023. It's mid-January. Dmitry, how are you? Doing very well, Conrad, and I hope all of our listeners are doing well. Hope you guys have had a productive uh, week. In the you know we're already in the third week of 2023, and you know it's looking quite positive so far. Everybody's have everybody has their news resolutions down, and you know people are just pushing forward. And uh, look, we're looking forward to Theophany and all the other um, great feast days coming up. For, um, for those of you in the Orthodox Church. And uh, now there's a few subjects we're going to speak on. Firstly, me and Conrad are going to break down a, an article which attacks the idea, you know, perpetrated and pushed by the, the Russian Orthodox Church, the idea of a Russian world, a united Orthodox, um, I suppose, cultural, civilizational ideal, which all the Russian-speaking countries and all the Russian-speaking peoples need to kind of strive towards. And after that breakdown, we'll go into the news, we'll go into the Ukraine news, some of the political things going, happening overseas. Um, we'll speak about the recent, you know, uh, great tragedies, for example, the death of the former king of Greece, Constantine II. We'll speak about Joe Biden, all the recent scandals happening in that area of the United States. And of course, more about church ecclesiology towards the end and some of the church persecutions relating to the Ukraine. Oh, it's going to be a really great episode. Uh, we, like I said at the beginning, it's going to be, it's not the, it's always timely, of course, has to do with the invasion, but this article is a little bit older, but it's really, I think it's an important thing to discuss and to to break down because you, especially if you're engaging with any of the discourse online or even in person, like if there, there literally are like, there's like official propaganda that people will read that quote-unquote counters ideas of the Russian world. Like you talk about this, it's kind of like the buzzword that sets off Ukrainian nationalists or pro-Ukrainians about, you know, oh, you're you're some Vatnik or whatever. But yeah, no, we have a great show set up today. We did our first Twitter space this past week. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore went really well. We're going to try to be doing those occasionally, talking to you guys. Had some great, great callers, had some great questions. It's really great engaging with you guys. But with all that being said, uh, Dimitri, let's let's dive into this. Yeah, so we're just using the edition of the article published on academia.edu, and essentially, you can find the article. It's only about five pages long, and essentially, it's less of an article and more of a published manifesto. And the manifesto is actually signed by at least twenty to thirty academics, most of them Western, surprisingly, and only one of them actually hailing from Moscow. Now, what the article breaks down is, of course, uh, the article is written shortly after February the 24th, 2022, and it discusses the fact that, well, the Russians are expanding in a chauvinistic way into Ukraine, both not just politically and through the special military or, or operation, but also in a religious fashion. So they're claiming that the Russian Moscow Patriarchate and the Patriarch Kirill specifically, who, you know, they treat so disrespectfully in the manifesto, they claim that he's kind of Putin's right-hand man and he's being used as as a sort of, uh, as a, you know, he's kind of pushing his own agenda, actually, at the same time also supporting Putin's agenda of Ukrainian conquest. And the reason why this article even matters, I suppose, is the fact that it's published and it's signed by uh, at least 20 or 30 Orthodox academics. And you know, they claim to be Orthodox Christians. Of course, some of them are very questionable. There are characters such as, you know, Sister Vasa from YouTube. There's people like Dr. David Bentley Hart, who, again, his Orthodoxy in itself, like he is a Christian and a former Anglican, but his actual purity of his faith and some of the things he claims are questionable, to say the least. And there were many Orthodox hierarchs who have shut him down in the past or at least put his criticism to the fire. So he does... Some of these people are very controversial, 
And just the opinion, the perspective of this article and the manifesto is coming from is, of course, a Western, liberal, NATO-friendly, Ukraine-friendly perspective. And, you know, just to break down the article, page one just discusses essentially that Patriarch Kirill and Putin are working together in order to perpetrate and push the Russian civilization outwards, starting from Ukraine. So they're claiming that Ukraine is being conquered, both in an ecclesiological church fashion, but also just a land, the fact that Donbass has been taken, Crimea has been taken by Russia. And it touches upon specifically the fact that, well, the the idea that the Russian world, right, and Russian world isn't something that the people who wrote this article uh, created. This is, you know, the phraseology of the Patriarch of Moscow himself. So Patriarch Kirill mentions that, hey, look, we have something that unites us similar to how in the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire, what united the majority of people was the, the fact that they were subjects of the Russian Empire, the fact that most of them were members of the Orthodox Church of Russia, the fact that they spoke Russian as a uniting language, similar to how in the English-speaking world, English unites, you know, say, all the disparate factions of North America because everybody can speak English. In the same way, Russia unites the Eurasian landmass, as Dugan would say. And this article criticizes that. It says, well, the Russian language, you know, spreading it to Ukraine, that, that is something chauvinistic and incredibly racist. But what they failed to mention is just the fact that, hey, look, um, the English world, I suppose the British Empire, the American Empire, even NATO, they've they've done the same thing. And it's not a it's not a whataboutism. It's just the fact that in, in the Orthodox Church and the Christian idea of chauvinism and, you know, the Christian definition of uh superiority it's it's just not present here to claim that all these various nations surrounding russia the fact that they use russian and some of them pray in church slavonic it doesn't mean that the russian language is superior to say a native estonian's tongue or even you know the ukrainian language or georgian or, or the kazakh language it simply means that russian is a common like a common tongue which everybody could speak and the article of course just you know, accuses Russia of essentially um, sort of uh, neo-Nazi kind of uh, racial superiority. And I think the claim is completely bogus. I'm not sure what your thoughts were of like the first and second page of the manifesto, Conrad. Well, I completely agree. And it's not even, I would say it's not only not a whataboutism, it's just not even comparable. The US empire has promulgated the Latin alphabet and English everywhere. Like everything has been English now. Every, 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 because everyone can now speak English, the entire world is now subjected to the whims of the propagandists that produce the highest quality English language propaganda. It's, I, I view what's happened in Europe and in the third world, all sorts of places with the English language, a lot more pernicious than anything Russia's doing in the Russian world with banning the Russian language in Ukraine would be like banning Spanish in Texas. Like it's like, it's even, even more silly than that. Like so many, like, like we said, Zelensky used to only be a speaker of Russian. He had to pick up on his Ukrainian when he became the president. Like, this this notion that this is it is just pure U.S. America. I would call it U.S. propaganda as well as just pure Ameridoxy. It's it's an effort by this cabal of of leftists that have done a very I wouldn't say successful, but they've put in a very concerted effort uh, with the collaboration of Jesuits. Of course, they work through Fordham Jesuit University. They have it's a very well funded operation to subvert English speaking specifically language orthodoxy, and they are of course very pro. Deaconess, the, the deaconess thing, which is just an underhanded way to get female priests and eventually have that be on the cards for us, which of course is never going to happen. No bishops are even entertaining that silliness. But nonetheless, these well-funded academic institutions are moving right along with it. And you read about, I mean, what does what one of these paragraphs says? It literally says, to support the support of many of the hierarchy of the Moscow Patriarchate for President Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine is rooted in a form of orthodox ethnophilatist religious fundamentalism. And if anybody doesn't know, ethnophilatism 
philatism has been condemned in the church as basically putting one's ethnicity above the faith, basically saying that to become to be Orthodox, you have to be Bulgarian. To be Orthodox, you have to be Greek. And like forcing and, and putting one's basically just putting one's national identity, which is very important, even in a church regard, putting that above, you know, just faith and above the Great Commission and everything like that. And I just think it's ironic that this is published because the only support that public orthodoxy has, of course, is from the ecumenical patriarch, who, as far as I'm concerned, the schism that the ecumenical patriarch has initiated has all sorts of ethnophilatist roots. One of the main things being that the entire orthodox world has to be Greek and that Hellenism is basically the same as orthodoxy and that to 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 perhaps not be a pure Hellenist would be to stand against orthodoxy. And we see that, of course, what I view as the neo-papist practices of the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew. I mean, these people at public orthodoxy are all fully on board with the idea that only the ecumenical patriarch can convene a pan-orthodox council or issue a tomos of autocephaly and all sorts of other things. Like it's, again, it's not direct. They don't believe in infallibility of a bishop per se, but from an ecclesiological perspective, it's pretty dang close to actual Roman papism. And I think just people need to be aware of that. If people want to learn more, there's a good video. It's on Rumble now, The Secret Subversion of American Orthodoxy. It goes into a lot of the backgrounds of these people, George Demacopoulos, Aristotle Papanicolaou, these egg-headed academics pumped up by big uh, NGO and uh, nonprofit funds to give corny speeches to a bunch of people that are just all there to be in the audience and be with each other and just talk about how they're going to bring in more modernist ideas and emeridoxy into the world of the church. And again, what I view Russia doing right now is what, frankly, most Orthodox churches have done throughout all of history. They've been advisors to their state leaders. The church has. They've been a critical civil institution. In Georgia, of course, the Georgian Orthodox Church is known as the most trusted institution. Patriarch Ilya, his eminence, turned 90 this past week. He is the most trusted public figure, actually, in any country anywhere, with, I believe, 96% approval rate or trust rate among the population of Georgia. What Russia is doing in preserving its interests, and and even from this linguistic perspective, is exactly what all sorts of autocephalous Orthodox churches have done throughout all of history, most explicitly the Greek Orthodox Church. Let's not forget, and I don't fault it for that. And it, it just needs to be remembered. These people will make this, like, these are the type of people that would basically call a Russian Orthodox priest serving, or a Ukrainian Orthodox priest serving under Metropolitan Onufri, who perhaps would in any way at all, even in his private time, express support for what Russia is doing in Ukraine. He would call them a collaborationist, and probably I would wager some of these people would turn them into the authorities. And I think that, I think these people are scum for all sorts of other reasons, but that, I believe, correct assertion alone would put them beyond the pale. And to understand that, yes, like, as Russia advances, there will be, like, the church will be providing critical rebuilding and, and, and providing institutional support for the rebuilding of these lands and hopefully eventually as well for the unification of whatever the final borders are with the, all Orthodox Christians in all across these lands, that the church will be one of the most important institutions involved in what you could call like healing the wounds, that this, the deep scars that this is all going to leave. And these people view all of that as nothing more than, you know, fascism, which is just beyond childish. I don't think that these people need, should be. Unfortunately, they're taken extremely seriously. You'll talk to somebody, and the only Orthodox theologian will know is, oh, David Bentley Hart, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, David Bentley Hart is, I would wager, not even a Christian. So I think uh, I, I think some of these these people, it would, it would behoove some bishops in the American world to really to come together and issue some even more harsh statements against some of these people because they are regrettably persistent. Yeah, that's right. And 
look, their persistence, I think, is seen for especially for the first article or the first point of you know of this manifesto, where they where the author, of course, uh, mentions the fact that look, um, the idea that the Russian world or that Russia should be this united Orthodox kingdom, this united uh, polity, right, of which you know where Christians are safe and where Christians can protect their own families and culture, and where you know members of politics, members of the bureaucracy, members of the church can work together in order to you know build a country. Uh, build a strong Christian nation, right? Which a lot of people speak about in, you know, somewhat cliche terms, especially for America. You know, we have Protestants and Catholics claiming, oh, well, America used to be a Christian country. Well, this is what Russians wish as well. Meanwhile, we have these, I guess, State Department, you know, liberal uh, Orthodox, you know, in parentheses, theologians claiming that, no, hey, look, this idea that Russia should be a united Christian kingdom and a united Christian landscape, right, is, is actually a bad idea. It's actually unchristian. And here are some citations from the Gospels. Now, just as many of these articles do, they never, they never quote the exegesis for those particulars, you know, those particular um, verses from the Bible and from the, you know, the letters of Paul, from the, you know, from Corinthians here, for example, is saying, he mentions that, look, or even from John 18, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, and so I should be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So he just, so the author quotes John 18.36, right? So Christ's words here, Christ, Christ here in this particular statement mentions that, yes, the kingdom of heaven is not here on earth, but neither, neither does Russia nor the Roman Empire nor any Christian kingdom throughout history has ever and this is very important, has ever, and you will not find a single saint or even a historical Christian figure, in, not in the Orthodox Church at least, who has claimed that their particular kingdom, their princedom, their, you know, whatever you want to call it, their democratic republic is the kingdom of God on earth, is this utopia. Orthodox Christians do not have a view of, do not have a utopian view of statehood. They have a view of statehood as a protectorate, where Christians are protected. And of course, we see this more, you know, and you might say, well, why is that required? Well, we see it more than ever now when you have these, you have the, in the age of the internet where, you know, children are attacked, uh, you know, ideologies are subverted, things of this nature. Like, you have to understand why it would be important for a state's power to be, you know, grounded in the ideals of a Christian worldview. I think this is absolutely fundamental. And so this, you know, in the first point, of course, he just mentions that, look, uh, we reject, and mind you, his words are not gospel to any Orthodox Christian. It's simply his opinion here. So as I'm reading it here, it's, he says, We therefore condemn as non-Orthodox and reject any teaching that seeks to replace the kingdom of God seen by the prophets proclaimed and inaugurated by Christ, taught by the apostles, received as wisdom by the church, set forth as dogma by the fathers, and experienced in every holy liturgy with the kingdom of this world. Be that kingdom of the holy Russia, sacred Byzantium, or any other earthly kingdom, therefore usurping Christ's own authority to deliver the kingdom to the to God the Father. Now, again, it's very like very hyperbolic, very emotional, very pathos-driven, and you know he tries to in, sort of engrave it in Christian symbology here. But there is nothing Christian about his statement. We know that in the Orthodox Church there are hundreds of royal saints, for example, kings, princes, emperors who were at one point living with us, ruling over their respective kingdoms, and they lived such pious lives that the Orthodox Church and Christ Himself has deemed to raise them up to sainthood and canonize them. Now. What does that reality of our Orthodox tradition, or even you know the broad Christian tradition, because Catholics have very similar, you know, have similar perspectives on royalty and also on monarchical power. What does that have to do with anything this man has written here? If anything, his perspective here is even it even goes beyond some of the viewpoints that Protestants push, you know, about the fact that well, God, 
you know, the fact that Christ Christ is a king in heaven, it kind of removes the need for having a king on earth or a king in our particular little kingdom. We should be a democracy here on earth. Like these these things are very much extensions of a liberal worldview, and that of course is Western in its um you know it's Western in its origin. And none of these ideas that he's you know, writing here in the first in the first article in the first point, none of them uh, have any grounding in the saints or in Orthodox tradition in general. Like so, let's just underline that before we move on to point number two. Let's also just underline this entire document, which serves to condemn Patriarch Kirill and everybody. It doesn't even quote Patriarch Kirill. So I think you would almost qualify it as slander in certain regards, just for that fact alone. But I also just want to make it clear, these people speak all about... The moment that you start advocating for Christian morality in the public sphere, you're some kind of utopian and abandoning the gospel. Meanwhile, these are the exact same clowns retweeting El Pidoforos marching with Black Lives Matter, El Pidoforos giving pro-abortion statements. Suddenly, oh, suddenly it isn't about heaven, it, suddenly it's not heaven on earth utopianism when you want to literally create social change that's never before been seen on this planet. But when someone wants to, you know, be ruled by Christians or, you know, not have people in their churches being persecuted or, you know, maybe not have blatant sex and homosexuality all across billboards for their children to see everywhere. Suddenly, you're some kind of reverse Malthusian, and you're a Christian, like Christian nationalist, all, this, all the slurs you hear everywhere about anybody that was, basically, if a right-wing person that doesn't want to just be a libertarian. And I, I just, the sanctimony that these people operate with, with the rank hypocrisy is just, it's, it's a bit baffling. Not baffling, it's not surprising at all. They're operating in bad faith, but... Regardless, I'll I'll hit it back to you, Dimitri. Yeah, I think one thing that needs to be mentioned. Now I tweeted this at um like this fellow who was cr- cr- critiquing me earlier in the week, just kind of saying that well, my, my some of my statements weren't Christian. Now look, here's just an example, I suppose, from Ukrainian and Russian history. Okay, so Saint Vladimir of Kiev, the the man, the prince who actually baptized all Russian people, and I suppose all Ukrainian people by that statement too, if that's what one believes that you know, ancient Ukrainians lived in those lands. He, when he became a Christian, he was perhaps in his mid thirties and he came to the he came to Christianity and he took it very seriously at first, almost taking on this and mind you, he's a state leader. He almost took on this pacifist agenda. He said, Well well, uh, I've read the Bible, and he, he hasn't as necessarily read, you know, exegesis correctly. And he just says, "Well, look, Christ speaks about peace, and um, and I'm this prince, and you know, I ruled over this land. Maybe I should just ban the ban capital punishment, ban the death penalty. And death penalty existed in Russia. This is in the 900 AD, like for very serious crimes, for example, murder and things of that nature. And of course, what did Saint Vladimir do? The, the prince banned banned the capital punishment. And the only way the cap- capital punishment actually returned was because the church officials said, look, this is going to cause the disorder. The, the criminal justice system is broken. Like capital punishment was a deterrent that kept all these bandits and criminals and all these other really uh, ludicrous people like, you know, I won't, don't have to mention exactly whom at bay. And so they actually asked the prince, the St. Vladimir of Kiev, right, who Ukrainians talk about so often as the progenitor of their people. They asked him to bring back the de- bring back capital punishment in, back into, you know, early Russia. And so you have this idea that even the church itself, the church officials, they want the state to actually organize itself and to actually look after the laws, look after, you know, the citizens of the country, the economy, things of this nature. This is not the objective of priests. The priests cannot be economists. The priests cannot be politicians, bureaucrats, uh, statesmen. This is the uh, sort of the thing that falls upon you know people in the state, the laity of the Orthodox Church. And yeah, and this touches upon you know, point two and three of this article where he claims that, look, uh, He misquotes again, Matthew 22. He says, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And 
you know, Brandon Gallagher, the author of the article, of course, he claims that, look, if Christ said render to, like, this division between what is Caesar's and what is God's is correct, and, you know, Orthodox Christians, we completely, we completely appreciate the fact that Matthew 22 is speaking about the fact that, yes, government, Jesus does acknowledge, the Son of God does acknowledge the fact that governments do exist and we have to be persistent in the way that we obey them. You know, to a certain point, and Apostle Paul, of course, reaches upon this as well in Romans, where he says, you know, a good Christian person needs to listen to laws, and we we cannot be complete libertarians in our beliefs. We have to obey the laws of the country until it, of course, infringes on our Christian conscience and our Christian morality, which in a lot of Western countries, and even in Ukraine, I'd wager, like, that is actually, it is already getting to the point where the laws are infringing upon our morality, which is why people are, parents are taking their children out of, you know, public schools and placing them either into private schools, which are, have a certain Christian curriculum, or even homeschooling their children, because, well, guess what? The state is actually funding degeneracy at this point. So, yeah, so articles two and three, they speak about these, you know, ideas that, look, uh, Christ and the world needs to be separated, but this is just not the reality. The Orthodox church is here on earth for us to appreciate the worldly church it unites both laity clergy the people of the world we are all living in this world and of course uh, for christ's power just as you know the saints who live among us they can actually ex they can make better states countries entire empires just as the roman empire at one point was this you know den of corruption and paganism and all this other degeneracy and, you know, eventually it became Christian. And who could have saw that coming? And the only way that could have happened is if Christians actually remained in it and transformed it from the inside. So there is this optimistic, I guess, reading of this text is that, yeah, Christians at some points in time, even maybe today in Western countries, they do make up a very small minority, for example, in the United States. So, so Conrad does make up this very small minority of the Orthodox Church in the U.S. But Conrad, by being a, or an Orthodox Christian and by staying true to the teaching of Christ, has does have a lasting impact on the people around him and not just him but any orthodox christian in america this is like one of the main messages i suppose which this article doesn't touch upon because it just dwells on the negativity on the fact that well russia is this evil boogeyman that needs to be shut down that is spreading its ideology abroad well how about we take a look at what ideology russia is spreading abroad it's it's a quite a wholesome one if you think about it and it's one that's grounded in christianity no it's i, I agree with what you're saying and i think it's important we talk about this a lot on the show it's an idea i like to perpetuate like I talk about the return to reality, you know, rejecting the fake, the alchemically transmuted world of the 20th century, you know, the post-war paradigm of ever since, you know, the death of Tsar Nicholas II and the empire, you know. Like I talked about in my solo episode with the C.S. Lewis book, you know, there is no emperor anymore in Merlin understanding the implications of that. Their quoting of scripture, I think, is a little bit childish. It's kind of the same exact stuff you hear from you know, liberals, people, people to cite these verses will like throw them at you and not even the people that are often citing them won't even believe them. They'll be like thinking they found like a gotcha to a Christian who's in any way right wing with these verses. But the, it, it's just completely divorced of the context of all of scripture, the context of church history. And just, it's, it's just terrible exegesis. I mean, just thinking about the old Testament, we know in judges, judges 21, it literally says in those days, there was no King in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The, in the beginning for everyone to be doing right in their own eyes and there to be no law and order and even epistemological blindness, all that needed to happen was there to be no king. Like people reading that in the ancient world would have understood the disorder that comes with there being no king in Israel. And that's not to say that they, like people always point to the example. It's like, well, you know, God warned them they don't need a king like the kingdom and they wandered and everything. But ultimately the prosperity of the kingdom did come and God granted them the king. And when there was a bad king, God anointed another. So it shows that in many ways, God was telling them not so much that monarchy was bad, but that they simply were not ready for it yet. And that's why they got Saul before they ever got David. But 
in that same regard, we talk about I talk about that return to reality, and people are saying, "Oh, you're like a monarchist, or you believe in this kind of, you believe in this symphonia stuff and this this silly government idea that has nothing to do with your the Western tradition and you know English legal and political tradition." At the end of the day, it's not so much that you're going around advocating for the sudden installation of a monarchy. We're pre-political here. Like, we we don't even have a common, people can't even, like, we see the confusion on gender, like, if something that Putin would say in a speech that people have, but that comes from, it's more than just not a common religion. Like, people don't even have a common language anymore. So many people are speaking Spanish, Chinese, the language alone, people aren't even able to communicate with their fellow countrymen. And if people aren't even the same religion, and even when we did have a similar religion, it was Protestantism, which is innately sectarian and is, is actually very opposed to, perhaps you could call a people coming together and a and and a full national uh, religious understanding that would then be able to implicate and manip- not manipulate to influence then and have a positive effect on state affairs and so i would say that not that i don't believe in politics i believe you got to i believe i still believe the roe versus wade decision was a victory and that would have been possible without political organization from conservatives but at the end of the day we need to put the great commission to a lot more work before we can have any kind of political you know i don't want to say salvation even just kind of political upward trend in this country and the West in general. Yeah, and it's just sad that there's this misunderstanding amongst, say, Christian theologians who, they have the gospel, they have all this exegesis, it's all translated, and they still cannot apply it properly to the real world, which is shocking. It's been it's been at least a hundred years of, you know, perpetual peace, at least for those who immigrated from Greece and Russia to the US, and, and they've had all these texts, and they've been musing over them for so long, and it just shows that, you know, at the end of the day, most of these folks are simply Pharisees in their hearts. Like, they, they know the laws, but they do not apply them properly, and, they, you know, that's just the reality of it. So, you know, the New Testament does repeat itself here in reality. So I, I think it should be should be seen like this article is just an example of what would happen if a liberal person tries to transmute and tries to like mold Orthodox Christianity to his own viewpoint. And of course, what comes out is completely incoherent. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't, again, it doesn't even quote the primary sources. It quotes, it quotes the gospel, but in many religions quote the Bible, you know, many denominations of Christianity, which don't agree on, you know, on a lot of things, frankly, they quote the Bible. So quoting the Bible is frankly not even enough. Firstly, you need to agree on the translation, but secondly, you need to agree on the exegesis and what each particular verse, you know, means and what we have here is an article which doesn't quote a single orthodox saint saying yeah it mentions at least 10 or 12 bible verses but it doesn't go anywhere beyond that and you know it is signed by some questionable people and so this article like at the end of the day is simply an example of what academia like corrupt orthodox academia can publish in the west in an english language and mind you this and notice how conrad even mentions the fact that look the orthodox church does prefer monarchy but it doesn't monarchy is not a necessarily a necessity just as having a patriarch or a metropolitan isn't a necessity you could have a simple bishop over you these things are all not decorative but they're important but you know to be a simple christian to make it to heaven you don't need any of these extraordinary um awesome things in a way and i mean awesome in its actual literal meaning and so what we see here is that the article itself it kind of it attacks the orthodox ideas of statehood of monarchy of say political conservatism of you know conserving christian culture it attacks these ideas without even um without these ideas even existing in the world around us like which country can you point to which has a complete 
perfect uh, you mapping out of orthodox morality or russia ukraine not even georgia i believe maybe georgia would be the closest but not even greece and countries like romania all these countries have these like gray areas and loopholes where it's simply uh, you know orthodox christianity has not completely installed itself in the legislation or even in the way people view things so this article in a way it's attacking a baby in a cradle like the orthodox statehood as conrad mentioned it it almost completely died in 1917 and i guess we'll talk about the you know the death of the greek king soon but yeah the, the fact that this article is essentially trying to go back in time trying to kill the idea of orthodox cultural conservatism before it even i suppose uh, arises anywhere around the world so it is very malicious i think and at the end of the day and just people should keep that in mind before they read these things well you know i mean for better or for worse orthodox civilization you could say again with the revitalization of i would call the ruski mirror in orthodox russia has been what I don't know when you would call the revival. You could maybe say 2000. You can maybe say the mid 90s. You can maybe say 2008, depending on where you want to, you know, go with Putin's rhetoric. But so this thing, let's let's say 20 years, Christian civilization has kind of existed in its infancy again, and these people are suddenly writing as if they've been persecuted under the empire for their entire freaking lives. Like it's it just like it it just shows you how how quick they are to get ahead of the narrative and and, and kind of capture this, and they know that. This is something that's rising, rising in the East, as you could say, and they're trying their best to gaslight as many Americans and American Orthodox people against it. But with all that being said, you know, we're talking about Russia, Ukraine as well. This is this was, of course, they wrote this in response to the invasion, of course, and things have been things have been chugging along there. We've basically seen, as everyone's saying, you've seen the headlines, the biggest Russian territorial gains since August, since the summer. Solodar has fallen. Even some roads directly towards Bakhmut are already falling under Wagner and militia control. We've seen some pictures of Prigozhin in some interesting places. Uh, Dimitri, what's your what's our sitrep situation here? Yeah, no, Solodar has been the first great victory of the Russian military, as well as the Wagner mercenary group. You know, who under the uh, through assistance of the Russian military has taken the town of Solodar. And so, for those who are unaware, Solodar is a town north of Bakhmut, very small town, roughly ten thousand people or so. And the town is it's essentially a mining town and, and uh, a salt gathering town. So the town is built on plenty of salt mines around. Which, mind you, these salt mines are not just small thin tunnels they're quite broad actually some sometimes as wide and as high as you know like we're talking 50 meters apart and so the fighting that took place here in, in the last you know throughout december was quite intense a lot of the fighting happened on the ground a lot of it above ground but in the end the town was taken by the russian forces and ukraine has only come to terms with this in the last couple days so they've actually acknowledged that yes solidar is under temporary russian control and I think the most notable event that occurred after the taking of the town was the attendance of the CEO and, of course, the leader of the Wagner Mercenary Group. This is the Russian mercenary um, organization, the, I think pretty much the largest mercenary organization in Russia at the time. He, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, he arrives personally to Solidar on a plane and, of course, uh, takes some photos, uh, you know, films a few clips for some of his uh, some of his people um, over there in Moscow and uh, returns back and and, in, and, he, and the way he returns back is really cool as well. He doesn't just fly back in an you know, expensive jet because he is you know he's a multimillionaire, maybe even a billionaire. This this guy he gets in a plane with wounded soldiers and actually supports them on their flight back to back to Russia to you know uh, obtain medical attention for them. So it's kind of admirable seeing uh, seeing this rich man in, in his you know, early 60s kind of attending a an active war zone and in a way uh, supporting the people that he leads and the people that he funds in person. I think it's really commendable. And so Solidar has fallen and it's the first time the Russians have actually been, you know, 
have actually have had a solid victory since, <laughs> no pun intended, since maybe, I don't know, the taking of, since the referendums in, in October and since the taking of Kherson, I'd say. Like, it's the first time. And of course, Bakhmut is still on the cards. We're not sure exactly who's who's going to take Bakhmut. Bakhmut's a lot larger than Solidar, about three or four times larger. So, yeah, the fighting is still ongoing and we're kind of still on the lookout. Um, Ukraine, of course, is ferociously sending brigades. At least at this point, they've been close to 14 brigades of Ukrainian troops actually attend Bakhmut. So the fighting there has not been stopping since early December, if not November of the last year. It's true. And in many ways, people are taking this as speculation. There's been a lot of movement, a lot of shift in the chain of command. You know, there's now been multiple other generals kind of added on. You know, Surovikin is still in his same position, but now... Uh, Garasimov and I believe Lapin and others have kind of been brought in in more official capacities. So people are, of course, speculating. You know, people say January 15th, which I believe this episode may or may not be airing after January 15th. So if something happens, you know, something happened. But, you know, many are saying that January 15th is when we'll see another renewed offensive, whether it's up towards Zaporozhia from, you know, Melitopol and Zaporozhia region, another one down from Kharkov and through Donbass down to perhaps a lot of the areas that were retaken by Ukraine and the uh, Kharkov counteroffensive. And then the other, you know, the more long shot case that they come in from Belarus and totally cut off the supply lines coming from Poland and Western Ukraine to the front, which is definitely possible. We've seen, still seen the insane amount of uh, equipment movement towards Belarus. So it's, it's very likely, but it seems very likely that, again, I've said it a million times, beginning of the end, not using that phrase exactly, but it could very well be that we're seeing, as Dimitri, I believe, said in our Twitter space, February 28th, part two, you know, kind of another big jump. And that's not to say that they're going to be doing a bunch of big arrow offensives, but it would be perhaps pressure that's going to be so hard that it might force Ukraine to the negotiating table or even end the Zelensky regime or eventually over perhaps two or three months take so much territory that the West decides it's uh, no longer worth it to support this lost cause. Yeah, and then, of course, the West may even pressure um, Russia and Ukraine, and firstly, Ukraine, of course, which is under the direct funding, and you know, as we'll talk about Joe Biden a bit later on, uh, the, the US and the West, NATO, will force Ukraine to sign a peace treaty with Russia, which at this point, really, they haven't really pushed for it. They've allowed Zelensky to perpetuate this conflict, both internally with his persecution of the Orthodox Church, with those who disagree, any dissenters of any kind, including political opposition. And of course, in, in terms of foreign aid, Zelensky has sent his entire nation, you know, people from the age of, I think, young men from the age of 18, all the way up to the pension, pension age. So we have I mean, even folks in the 60s actually fighting in the Ukrainian military. So it's quite disgusting at this point. The Ukrainian military has been completely mobilized for already at least eight to 10 months. So there is really no one else to send to the front lines. And Zelensky has essentially exhausted the Ukrainian population. We don't even know the total number of losses, but I'm sure it's surpassing five digits at this point. We're maybe looking at hundreds of thousands of dead. And it's just horrible, of course, because most of these people are, I would say, innocent, maybe even fooled. And some of them are... I would say uh, probably not even sure of what they're fighting for exactly. Like, who are they fighting? Are they fighting for this clown who uh, has, was elected in 2019, this sort of, um, you know, this jester in power? Like, are they fighting for a Ukraine which will join the European Union? What are they fighting for? Western values? It's hard to even pinpoint what each particular soldier is you know, fighting for for the Ukrainian military. And some of them maybe are even forced into combat. Let's just be real. Mobilization and conscription is not something you really have a choice in. 
and unlike the Russian mobilization, which was the point I was returning to here, the Russian mobilization took place in October, and we still haven't seen this great push of Russian troops towards the front lines. So as uh, Conrad mentioned, we did make this prediction that for the end of February 2023 is probably when the snow begins to fall, slightly the temperatures do increase, and then the Russians can actually begin their offensive once winter's over. We're about halfway through winter, perhaps it'll be about midway through winter when the episode does air, and we're talking about European winter here. And uh, yeah, so the impact, of course, of, you know, to the fact that the Russians have been training these 300,000 mobilized troops for already four or five months, it will, of course, impact the front lines greatly. And we'll just have to wait. But my prediction is, yes, Solidar is a big victory. Bakhmut is a potentially an even larger victory looming right over the horizon. Who knows? But I do not think the Russians are going to actually push forward heavily. We'll see what happens January 15th, 16th. But I think they are going to wait until the end of February, March and Great Lent, that sort of period. Uh, we're seeing, I believe, the preparation for, I hope, like, I hope that, I, not I hope, it seems to be they're viewing this as what they want to be the final big push before some real strong change occurs. And we are seeing shipments of weapons, as we said before, from from Poland and from Finland. They're bringing, sending tanks, they're sending this upgraded, le- it's another level up of support of hardware being sent in, but watch Brian Berletic's analysis for a bit more details, but in so many ways, it's just not going to be enough to change the ta- change anything. And in many ways, it could serve to bog down command and everything with training all sorts of people on these new machines and these new things that aren't going to actually be able to be operated by Ukrainian teams. It'll have to be entirely mercenary operated for months before you could actually get, you know, people that haven't at least been training outside of Ukraine on these things, operating them. And when it comes to Dimitri mentioning the, uh, you know, the conscription. And it, I think of, we were discussed this in the Twitter space. So apologies if you're listening to this again, you're a loyal fan, but there was a very well-known video going around. We're not going to dwell on it too long, but it basically shows, I don't know if it's a Russian soldier or a Wagner soldier. People say it could be Wagner because Wagner wears a camo that's more similar to the Ukrainian style. And later in the video, he's mistaken by Ukrainians for one of their own. And he's basically flanking a trench. He throws a grenade into the trench where two Ukrainians are, it blows up. He gets them. He's asking them to surrender. One of them, the younger one, seems to be initially surrendering, and an older man, he seemed to easily be over 50, wasn't really understanding. He seemed to think that the Russian was on his side, and so he was then reaching for his gun again and grabbing it back, and both of them ended up getting getting killed in the heat of the moment. And it just you know, it further shows the, the tragedy as well. And I think it kind of, not a turning point, but from a media perspective, it really kind of displays that the, the current personnel situation in Ukraine is getting sad. And you see these photos from these cities of, it's just... Every city block is almost just as many uniformed men walking around with clipboards approaching anyone that looks like, you know, their military age to make sure that they're registered and that they either have a good reason that they're not there or that they're being reevaluated. So I, I don't like to use the term, you know, military authoritarian dictatorship because it's, you know, the same kind of logic people use when they just see basic recruitment going on in Russia. But it's it's more just becoming this, this sad state of affairs that's only still going because of perpetual and unyielding support from the world's superpowers in the West. And I hope that this renewed offensive, whether it's on the 15th or whether it's really starts at the end of January or maybe at the one year anniversary of all this, we hope that it's the beginning of the truly is the beginning of the end. Yeah, that's right. Our Twitter space, we did cover a few subjects, which you know we'll be talking about today as well. And that, that clip is very gnarly. We don't necessarily recommend all our listeners go watch the clip of the Russian soldier, you know, fighting the two Ukrainians, but it does it does paint a very vivid picture of what happens on the front lines here it's not not every scenario is incredibly heroic and not every situation is you know 
is as they describe sometimes where, you know, battle and war is, of course, something that's horrific at the end of the day, and no matter how heroic the participants. So people should be aware of that, and that clip, I think, just paints that very accurate picture. Now, one of the other subjects we, of course, spoke about towards the end of the Twitter space, I had a bit of a monologue on this, was the passing of Constantine II, the... Um, the former king of Greece. Now he, he's, he, his monarchy or his, I suppose his monarchy, the Greek monarchy was abolished in 1973. So exactly 50 years ago. So it's been quite a while since Greece actually had a king. And this uh, king has lived on in exile, Constantine II, only passing away on the 10th of January this year. So a couple days ago now at this point. Now, the reaction to his death has been somewhat mixed, surprisingly, among you know, even Orthodox Christians, which should see, of course, Constantine as like this beacon of like an example of a recent Orthodox monarch who actually lived among us and even perhaps was, you know, he, yeah, he's sure he lost power, but at one point he did participate as an Orthodox monarch in worldly politics, in the fact, you know, in the church, he was, he had this presence and he was a bit more than simply a president or a prime minister, which unfortunately not many Orthodox people have that privilege of, you know, uh, having a having a king, having a Christian king rule over them, and some of the reactions were quite negative. And I think most most folks really don't. This may be touching upon the first subject we spoke about, but not most people don't appreciate how Orthodox monarchy, the idea of it, and perhaps we will write an article on this uh, in the future. This is a really, I think, this needs to be stressed that most people, especially those in the West, maybe those in Greece and Europe, as well as Russia, I would say Russia especially, especially. Folks don't have an, a correct idea of how Orthodox monarchy really operates and what the perspective, what the viewpoint is of an or, or, or a Christian king, a monarch, a prince, an emperor. They have this idea that, well, if it's a public figure, that means I can just criticize them and, you know, talk smack just like I, you know, meme about Biden or meme about Trump or, if one, say, if Joe Biden passed tomorrow, I'm sure the memes would be all over the place. Like, you know, people would just start joking about his passing. But when the king of the grace dies, the perspective is a little bit different. We... The Orthodox opinion on of, of on king of kings is a lot higher than simply that of regular politicians, regular statespeople, regular princes. Even uh, kings and emperors are held in very high regard, almost to the same regard as bishops. In some cases, uh, you know, with those holding imperial authority, they are seen as equivalents to bishops, and they're given almost the same dignity, especially in their funerals. So, this the passing of the king of Greece did lead some Greeks to you know kind of begin attacking him and saying, well, he led Greece in a wrong way in the 70s, and his ancestors were not of true Greek origin, they didn't have Greek DNA, they were of German heritage, and they started attacking it from all these, just attacking the late king, from all these, like, seemingly semantical, almost uh, minor minor opinions, and it almost, it reminded me slightly, Conrad, uh, of, if you recall, when Nicholas II uh, when you know you read all these history books about 1917, I'm like, oh, how did Nicholas II lose power? Why did no one support him? Well, it was the same perspective. People were saying, well, he didn't fight World War One correctly. I didn't like his economic reform. I didn't like his family. I didn't like Rasputin. I didn't like his wife. His wife was a German. It's the same attitude we see literally in 2023 from the Greek, from certain parts of you know the Greek Orthodox community attacking their own king, just as the Russians were attacking Saint Nicholas II in 1917. It's almost been a hundred years, yet these monarchs are slandered for even minor, maybe even non-existent mistakes, but they're still being attacked and uh, defamed. Meanwhile, the people who actually want to control your nation, so the, the folks who want to take power from these kings and you know run the nation into the ground are smiling, just as Orthodox Christians are critiquing their own. It's it's pretty shameful, I think.
Well, and let's think about it. You, you brought up Tsar Nicholas II. Let's keep the comparison going. What happened after his assassination? Of course, the Soviet Union was create was was fully created. You know, on the blood of the royal martyrs. And what 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 did that lead to? That led to the geopolitical reality today that has Ukraine and uh, White Russia and all these places separated from Russia itself. That has, of course, precipitated the bloody, horrible conflict that we're currently undergoing. And what happened after? The fall of King Constantine II, of course, there was the caretaker government and there was the coup and there was the, you know, all the, all these attempts and there was right wing attempts at democracy and there's left wing attempts at, you know, all these things and the centrists and, and what happened within a year, well, they lose half of Cyprus to the Ottomans and they, they're, they're stuck in one of the worst, you know, current geopolitical situations with Turkey, who they're now also NATO allies with. And all this context happened, of course, right after they, they, they abandoned their king. And that's not to say that Constantine II was perfect and that, the, that that everyone that had grievances against him was necessarily wrong. And in many ways, we were already in the modern world. And as you said, there already was no emperor. So he was kind of a, a king holding out recourse with, with, with knowing the tradition himself as without having, as Merlin said, you know, the, the emperor is the one who's supposed to settle the disputes between the Christian kings. And unfortunately, there was no more emperor to come in and maybe set, set the situation, set the situation right. But it's a pattern that repeats itself. Same with the re-territorialization with, you know, Montenegro, Kosovo, and Serbia, with Ukraine and Russia, with, you know, Cyprus, Anatolia, the islands in Greece, uh, with Germany and, you know, everything that happened before with Danzig and the land bridge, with all sorts, every, all sorts of conflicts in the 20th century precipitated by the globalist powers that be involved, geographic and monarchical separations and the severing of the people from from their king and from from some of their most important land, and I think that's something that people should really remember when observing current events. Very well said. I you know most folks need to just realize the fact that Orthodox kings hold a hold a special place in the church. You know we pray for them. There's a special prayers which are said for them because they hold these important offices of leadership, and they're also under extreme pressure not from not from just domestic and you know domestic disputes, but also foreign powers wish to you know, dethrone them in order to, you know, as they say, in order to, you know, defeat a country, you must, you know, take over its leadership. And the king is the personification of that country's leadership. And so that's why foreign powers always aim to, you know, take down the monarch first. So we should just keep in mind and just examples of just two minor examples of exactly what changed in Greece after the monarchy left. Well, firstly, an expansion of LGBT rights. I don't need to explain why or exactly you know why that may be negative towards certain you know areas of greek society i think most of the listeners would already know so after 1973 greece became incredibly not incredibly liberal but these rights were expanded and of course the most obvious and i think even even more apparent was the legalization of abortion in greece in 1978 so not all it took was five years without monarchy for greece to legalize abortion you know, I don't need to, I think, mention anything else in that regard. So we're seeing like monarchy is tied in intuitively to this cataconic design that look, the monarchy in Christian countries holds back evil. And that is the grand idea that Apostle Paul gave to us. And of course, that's the idea that I'm sure the Holy Spirit gave Apostle Paul. So and through our saints, we continue on that tradition. And we even Constantine II, well, you know, he wasn't even a fully fledged emperor, even leaving his title, Constantine II, there were at least 11 Constantines in the Byzantine Empire, and in a way, he continues on that tradition of, you know, he's like a new, he's not a continuum of the Byzantine Empire, he's like a Constantine II, so essentially the line, uh, it's a, he's a king of a particular kingdom, not an empire. So that's completely fine, like, we need to understand that, look, 
he didn't hold as much power as the emperors of old or even the Russian monarchy or Nicholas II, but he did try his best and his country betrayed him, unfortunately. And, and maybe some of the Greek people do mourn him. And, you know, those to those people, God will be very gracious because God does love the, those who love the kings that he places above them. So that should be mentioned as well. Now, just moving on to maybe a king who has uh, slightly less dignity than uh Constantine the second or you know let's just not say king okay joe biden is the president of the united states and he's earned that crown rightly through the most fair election that's ever been seen in the last 50 years no it's true and i was going to say before we move on to our less fortunate executive and less i would say less venerable executive i was going to say and it has tying it back a little bit to our point that orthodox are not utopians we like this these accusations about this sort of you know, right-wing heaven-on-earth stuff that left-wingers like to always lob at, you know, perhaps monarchists or traditionalists or people that believe that there's nothing wrong with the church exerting its influence on government affairs. There are many prophecies and many and in the history of the church and the scriptures and now that involve profitable things transcribing on the people from even governmental perspectives. Like you can read words from St. Porfirio, St. Paisios, St. Joseph the Hesychast. You've heard about the marble king. Some say he's St. John Vitatsis, a former uh, king of Nicaea in the wake of some of the civil wars and pre-fall of the Byzantine Empire, and that he would usher in a time of a time of peace and prosperity before the Antichrist. That doesn't mean that that's the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean that suddenly there would be some infallible government. But there are good times and there are bad times. There's nothing new under the sun. And of course, any kind of the saints in the church would be able, with clairvoyance, of course, would be able to see when those times would or would not come. And as we've said before, a lot of those things can be manipulated and, you know, influenced by God based on our repentance and based on our engagement with the sacraments and our acceptance of the gospel and our living of the gospel. So I think uh, it's just important that people look into, just put aside your modernism, put aside your pro-democracy, pro-science views that when you read a saint story, something from the lives of the saints immediately has you, um, actually, you know, wanting to fact put that aside and immerse yourself in the tradition of the church and the words of our modern saints and what they kind of think is going to happen and they think was going on at their time because it's all, it's really interesting stuff. But with all that being said, we got to get into some Brandon stuff, you know, big, big sleepy Joe himself. He's in some hot water. And if any, I'm sure most people are somewhat aware of what's happened to Joe Biden. A lot of classified documents have been found. It's got to the point where like some third trove were found in his Corvette, which is just starting to sound like stuff written for the tabloids at this point. And my thesis is there. And this is shared by the Duran, by others. I'm not the first person to say this. I did. This is my immediate thought, though. I came to it at least independently. It was their their phase in Joe out? Joe recently. Joe got him over the midterms. Did way better than they expected. All the Republicans got is the House. And then Joe said he was trying to run again in 2024. And the Dems are like, nope. Sorry, Joe. 2024. We need you know somebody that can string two sentences together and isn't white. So that's not, no, maybe they may get Gavin Newsom in there. So I may eat my words on that, but that's possible. But it, there, it seems that what this is a concerted effort and there's no, seems to be no effort to conceal it from the media for the media to cover it up. Everyone's talking about it. They put, they put him out there himself without his press secretary, just in front of the press, which I can only assume the person who made that decision is in on the job to get him out because that's just never a good idea to have Joe actually out there fielding random questions from hostile media which you can watch the clips. It's, 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 it's pretty abysmal from an optics perspective. But I think another big reason they're going to get him out is because they realize it's over for Zelensky in Ukraine and that whole meme, and they're going to pin it. They realize they can pin that on Joe too. And whether they get Kamala in or whether they just, you know, elect Gavin Newsom in 2024 or somebody else that they're going to come up with, 
they can even put aside the inevitable kind of Ukraine egg on face that NATO's going to have and be like, ah, we we got rid of Brandon real quick. You know, the military can kind of come into a press conference, you know, save face, blame it all on Biden and, you know, maybe escape with a bit of an optics Pyrrhic victory. But uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, it's a dynamic situation, so things could have totally changed. There's been a special counsel appointed, which, for those that don't know, a special counsel being appointed basically means you're doomed to, you know, scandal after scandal leak about the specific thing for like a year. That's what happened with Trump. It's what happened with Bill Clinton with the Monica Lewinsky thing. Once you allow a special counsel to be appointed, they have a lot of new access to discovery and and to and to do interviews and to hold hearings and stuff. So it's it's going to be another long road and it seems how quickly Merrick Garland a far left neoliberal bidenist with how fast he appointed it it seems that this is a concerted effort from within the democratic party and within the globalist establishment in the US to uh phase out old joe yeah and just as the special counsel will be looking for joe's dirty laundry and of course uh, you know subpoenaing all the subpoenaing all the documents checking exactly what he's been doing the last few years or even the last like 35 plus years he's been in politics like they're going to be on the lookout. So um, I think a lot of a lot of things can come out, especially about some of the Burisma, maybe even Hunter Biden uh, episodes in Ukraine. And they may even dump, as you said, Conrad, they may throw the whole story into Joe, uh, include Hunter Biden in that combination, just get him out based on corruption or even, you know, just incompetency. Or he may, he may even resign himself. Like, I think, frankly, there's this, uh, there's this move towards, um, well, yeah, Russia doesn't seem to be giving up. Its economy isn't crashing. So this foreign, foreign political disaster, just as Afghanistan and the way they've kind of you know swept it under the rug you can the u.s military industrial complex does have a way of sweeping these military foreign disasters under rugs and you know happened in vietnam happened in afghanistan iraq was um seemingly a victory i want to say for whatever they were trying to achieve over there which was probably the destruction of an entire nation but um, besides that yeah that's, i think that's kind of my perspective on what's happening here no it goes along with the whole ukraine situation is causing a bit of a a general stir and a bit of a kind of coming to the senses of the the internationalist elite, the people that, you know, make this work, the EU bureaucrats, the NATO operatchiks, the military industrial complex, you know, the clerks, the Joint Chiefs of Staff here in the States. Like, we're seeing uh, some, some, some soft power being used on Turkey as it seems that Erdogan is totally normalizing relations with Assad, which would in many ways mean de facto NATO normalization because Turkey, you know, are the representatives of NATO in Syria for the most part now that the U.S. is not doing too much there anymore. And the U.S. is saying that they're going to hold back on their F-16 uh, deployments to their, their payments and shipments that Turkey's ordered of F-16s about their, they don't want them normalized, they don't want Erdogan normalizing relations with Assad. And it all, well, that and they don't want, they do want the Turks to let Finland and Sweden into NATO. They're trying to expedite that, and Turkey and Erdogan are holding strong because they don't believe Finland and Sweden are doing enough on the Kurdish question, on the you know asylum of Kurdish terrorists and the, their recognition of the PKK and their treatment at the UN and other international bodies of the whole Kurdish situation. And so that's going to be a bit of a fight. We have no doubt that's going to affect how the U.S. influences the and interferes in the upcoming 2023. Turkish elections, which are happening in the summer, and we're going to be keeping a very close eye on that. We're going to be trying to get some people on to discuss it, and it shows that a lot of what we talked about on the show, some of the main things we discuss, and some of you know the main things that we've said are likely to occur. We can maybe start seeing a timeline on when those things might start going down once we have the results of that election. So I think the fact that the U.S. is really prioritizing Turkey now on their foreign policy agenda shows how critical 
this election is and how us on this show, frankly, not to toot our own horn, have been really focused in on the window of the world where stuff's really happening, not just talking about Ukraine, but talking about the other places we do. Yeah, and just to, just to move the focus a bit to some of the other places, the recent Cyprus election, which we've covered quite thoroughly over all of November and December, eventually it ended up with Metropolitan, you know, the new Archbishop Georgios being elected. And one of the contenders, Metropolitan Neophytos Morfu, who we speak about very fondly, I mean, since the beginning of our podcast in October 2022, we've been mentioning this great hierarch of the Orthodox Church. Now, Metropolitan Neophytos recently made uh, quite a stark um, almost almost an open-ended kind of statement about uh, Zelensky and Ukraine. And he kind of condemned that entire leadership for, you know, the leadership of the Ukrainian government for persecuting the Russian church. He said, look, you guys are in the wrong. He called Zelensky some names. Um, frankly, maybe Conrad can expand upon this slightly, but it led to the banning of, you know, this this fellow named uh, Patriarch Prime off of Twitter who tried to, you know, essentially just paraphrase Metropolitan Neophytos on Twitter, just uh, Patriarch... Well, frankly, he wasn't even uh, he wasn't even paraphrasing him, he just quoted him exactly, and Metropolitan Neophytos made some comments on uh, mm-hmm. you know, what you might call the ethno-religious heritage of Zelensky, well, we've posted it on our Telegram, you can read the whole thing, we want to be a bit careful with YouTube's terms of service here, but it was actually a part of his statement as to why he wasn't attending the enthronement of Archbishop Georgios. And he even says that while ultimately I, I still could attend, but I'm very tired, I'm, I'm hoping to stay in my cell and pray, mostly to pray for the pers- those persecuted in Ukraine who you seem to be disregarding as you were commemorating the schismatics who would advocate for their persecution and are supported by their persecutors. And he's, Metropolitan Neophytos, in his history as a cleric, he's friends with many of these people. Metropolitan Paul of the of the Kiev caves of many of these monasteries and bishops and their archimandrites, he knows them. And he lays their persecution directly at the feet of Zelensky, who he notes very explicitly is not a Christian. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's very, uh, it, like we said, with some of the things that are going down, Metropolitan Neophytos, we said, it seems that God probably has positioned him in the right place and made sure that he didn't get particularly close to becoming Archbishop of Cyprus for, for reasons that I think we're going to see in the next few years. So, be sure to pray for Cyprus, as we mentioned before, still under Turkish occupation. We believe that there's good things to come for that island, though, in the future. And we hope, both of us hope to make it there someday, actually, too, for pilgrimage purposes, as well as, you know, World War Now purposes. And, uh, yeah, no, with all of that, uh, if there's anything you want to say, perhaps, about Turkey or, or the current the geopolitical situation in the Levant or anything, Dimitri, feel free to say so. But with all that, we're going to maybe move on to some... Uh, shift gears a little bit and start to wrap it up, talk about some specific persecution stuff, a few other things, talk about Cheburashka, a movie that's doing very well in Russia. So, uh, Dimitri, do you have anything you want to leave us with on the more metapolitical, geopolitical front? Yeah, I think geopolitically, um, the IDF and some of the Palestinian authorities have been signaling at each other, not, not of course... Um, uh, over the internet, they have been commenting on the fact that, look, if Israel does want to escalate with Hamas again, we, we're welcome. You know, Hamas says, look, bring it on. We're, we're happy to actually escalate things and have another intifada. But I'm not sure if that's uh, if that's still in the cards or if that's going to happen anytime soon. So the Israel-Palestinian uh, issue is, of course, coming right to the forefront again. We see, it, we see it all over Twitter. Essentially, we have Palestinians tweeting at Israeli officials and back and forth. So that's always kind of escalating ever since we, what we spoke about with um, Ben Gavir and some of the right-wing Israeli political members, um, you know, openly attending the Temple Mount and, you know, 
participating in some of their uh, Jewish customs, just and kind of just right in in the face of some of these uh, Muslims who view them as like their primary enemies. I would say, like it's very kind of very open. It's almost as if they're inviting, you know, the IDF and the right wing Israeli authorities when they invite the invite Hamas and some of the radical Palestinian folks to, you know, come into direct opposition sometime as soon as you know the opportunity presents itself. But it does seem like there are gaps between the various intifadas over the last. 30 years so maybe we're kind of getting to that it's almost like the ebb and flow of a i don't know um of a stock market in a way it's and nothing ever seems to get resolved in either direction everybody suffers and nobody really comes out on top even even the israeli state who you think would achieve you know total superiority through its financing from the u.s and other nations as well as it's just a straight up superiority in terms of numbers and you know it's the fact that israel has lost two of its greatest threats uh you know in a way uh, Syria has been greatly hindered and Iraq has fallen to the US. So Israel is in a great position and still cannot deal with these, uh, I suppose, domestic tensions between themselves and the Palestinians. So that's kind of still on the cards. We're looking for that. Uh, maybe uh, we'll have a Twitter space this week and we'll maybe discuss some of those tensions more closely. But um, with that, I think we can move on to the world of the Russian cinema and kind of see how that's going. There's a few, uh, we, we thought about maybe talking about this at the part where we talked about the Russian world, but we thought it would be a bit of a, a bit of a harsh uh, tone shift once we got back into discussing the, the bloody war on the ground. So here we are now to talk about Chiburashka, uh, which is a Russian movie that's doing very well. And we thought it'd be interesting to discuss, Dmitry has some fond memories of the original cartoon that it was based off of. And it really does show, though, that, you know, part of what we've talked about and Dr. Steve Turley by a boss, good friend of mine, he talks a lot about, you know, Russia's civilization state. And this, I think this movie, it's, it's a well-made movie. It was produced very on a, on a tight budget, but a, a big budget, but a, a reasonable budget for a, you know, very well animated CGI live action film. And it's now the highest uh, grossing movie in Russia. It surpassed Avatar 2, which apparently Russians love the first Avatar. So the fact that it surpassed the second one, proves that it's this is a very popular movie it's now grossed over it grossed over two billion rubles by january 6th so it's been a while now it's probably way more than that but uh dimitri for those that don't know you want to talk about chiburashka yeah that's right so chiburashka is this uh, 2023 film right now it's uh playing in the Russian cinemas. It is, by all intents and purposes, a domestic blockbuster. I'm not sure if many nations have actually received it. Those in the West are probably unable to see it in cinemas. It's just an animated Russian, I would even say more of a Russian-Soviet story, because the story of Chiburashka and the friendship between him and the crocodile Gena, and so him and Gena are friends, these uh, animals that become friends in a zoo, and how Chiburashka actually arrives at the zoo is that he's imported into Soviet Russia from abroad. We're not actually told, this is, I'm talking about the story here, we're not told how this little character Chiburashka arrives uh, and visits again at the, um, at, at the zoo. Gena is a Okay, Gena is a crocodile that can speak, and he lives at a in in, in a Russian zoo. Now, Chiparashka is an unknown creature. It's for all intents and purposes maybe a cryptid. A, a, we're not sure. He looks like a small bear, maybe a koala, perhaps with the large ears. But he does arrive in a crate of oranges, and suddenly he's not sure where he is. It's almost as if he's been kidnapped. He's like this illegal immigrant in Russia, and he. Of course, he speaks Russian, so this little character, Chiburashka, wanders around Moscow, Leningrad, looking for friends, and he meets his crocodile in a cage. And of course, uh, the crocodile is living greatly in the zoo, like he's well-treated, but him and Chiburashka, they leave the zoo and they go on an adventure around the city. And mind you, these animal characters, they wear clothes, so it's kind of like, um, you know, 
they are somewhat, somewhat human-like, and they make friends, and they have these small adventures along the way. Now, of course, Chibaroshka being this unique animal, him being a bear, and it's like a Winnie the Pooh, it's like a Russian version of a Winnie the Pooh type of character. He, his, his uniqueness does make him a target, so there are poachers who go after him, there are these bandits who want to steal him, and those are kind of the... Um, the antagonists of the story. Now, whether or not this particular movie, which I haven't watched, I've only seen some trailers for it, whether or not those characters are in there, I'm not too sure, but the movie does, has been, uh, some of the reviews have come out very positively. They've said, look, the film does not have any of this minority pandering, even though the film's literally about uh, Chibaroshka, you know, is a, an immigrant character like he is he is essentially an immigrant animal who arrives in russia he's not a russian and this little bear and his story this the movie itself so to speak doesn't have any kind of um minority pandering doesn't have any of this weird liberal agenda you know things that we even see in disney films of these days like we it doesn't have any of the um you know deranged uh you know I guess uh, things that we see in Western media, I really try to abstain from those sort of things. So I don't actually even have any good examples to give of recent films. But Conrad, maybe you can kind of expand on that. Like Western media and Hollywood and Netflix, they've kind of pushed these even children's cartoons to the point of, well, well, I guess the more degenerate we make them, you know, if people don't complain, kind of maybe, you know, we can push our agenda forward with that. And this is from the perspective of liberals. Well, the unfortunate thing with the West is that at this point, They've realized now that the main consumers actually of even quote-unquote children's content and even older nostalgic content are actually just adults watching stuff that's either related to stuff they watched when they were kids or just re-watching the content itself. It's like over a quarter of all Disney Plus memberships, I believe, are adults without children. And what we're seeing because of that is all these beloved characters now are kind of being reappropriated into these degenerate disgusting quote-unquote adult versions sometimes without even raising the age of the characters themselves in what i would argue is basically a pedophile agenda in the cinemas like we're seeing this latest like scooby-doo velma i don't even want to i i almost don't even want to dignify this with even bringing it up but basically a beloved old franchise was made into some of the most crass disgusting anti-white propaganda you've ever seen in your entire life and of course millions of people are going to watch it because it's branded as something that millions of people have a nostalgic affiliation with and instead, thankfully, in this Russian world, we see that they're able to produce high-quality cinema at the same you know, CGI animation quality as something in the West, as well as something that has this nostalgia factor, but it's actually something that brings new life to the characters that's appreciable by both children and adults, as well as like people, kids who probably are too young to have ever known what Chibaraska was back in the day will love this movie and then want to watch it with their parents, and the parents are, of course, happy to watch it because they remember it from back in the day. And like I said, it brings a new spin to it. Like a well-known actor plays uh, the, the the crocodile character who's no longer a crocodile. He's just an old man. So, you know, it's it's it's, it's a bit of a reinvent, reinvention. But I encourage everyone to listen to the latest episode of Russians with Attitude. It's like free, 50 minutes free on their YouTube channel. They have a good analysis of it. They saw the movie. So it's, uh, yeah, maybe someday I'll get to see it here in the West. Yeah, and the, uh, just to kind of explain how this character is so well known in Russia to the point where Dugin even had a lecture on the character of Gena the Crocodile and Shibarashka and how it led to the fall of the Soviet Union in a very comedic sort of lecture Dugin says well the fact that Russians started watching a cartoon about a crocodile who was a positive you know protagonist character I mean this spells disaster crocodiles are associated with Sobek you know the brother of Anubis in Egyptian mythology crocodiles are associated with dinosaurs with dragons in orthodox iconography crocodiles are either associated with the more of hell or hades or you know in icons they're depicted as almost dragon like so crocodiles are not nice creatures at least not in the 
not in the Russian idea, because there are no crocodiles in Russia, but every time a Russian hears or sees a crocodile, it's something, you know, menacing and dangerous. So here having a, the Soviets releasing this cartoon in the 1960s, depicting a crocodile as a protagonist, a nice, friendly going character who helps Chibarashka on his journey. It does, uh, it does spell kind of an interesting sort of cultural shift and, you know, Dugan does make it a bit more esoteric than maybe it needs to be, but it's quite an entertaining sort of take. And I do think it, it is a bit unique. I don't think there's a single story in the last 100 years which, you know, painted a crocodile as a main protagonist. It is a little bit bizarre. But anyhow, Chibarashka, a great film. I'm, I'm probably going to download it to watch it remotely because, yeah, the my, cinemas in my particular nation aren't really showing the movie because, well, frankly, sanctions are really kicking in at this point so russian you know russian products such as russian standard vodka russian caviar russian any russian imports are just you know being replaced and not even um you know not being uh essentially the persecution of the russian culture is quite broad at this point let's just say we're almost a year in so um we're kind of looking forward to watching the film at home kind of remotely yeah, no, and in a way, like what Dugan's saying, he's almost kind of saying, kind of, I say, a Pajot-esque analysis. You know, Jonathan would probably say something about, but between the, the the anthropomorphic crocodile and then the bizarre cryptid-like character, that's perhaps a sort of hybrid as well as a sort of comes from kind of the edge of you know, it's this. He was an import of oranges, right? So it's implied that he's perhaps coming from a tropical place, a place far away from Russia, and. This means he's, you know, perhaps on the edge of civilization, of course, this signaling, you know, the triumph and the normalization of the fringes, which I guess could be a portent of, you know, the collapse of empire. Of course, mostly it's just like a cozy little cartoon. From an animation style, it reminds me that the old versions, at least, reminds me of like Schoolhouse Rock here in America, which I believe were mostly produced in the 1970s, which, while largely, of course, being Americanist propaganda, if you watch it, it's just crazy because you go back and it, of course, talks about like believing in the Trinity and the family, like it, it very, very uh, interesting and just uh, kind of a realization that even, even like the cutting edge of secularism of America still at certain points had to pander towards overt, you know, Christian dogma. But I believe uh, before we talk about some other unfortunate animals for perhaps just a few seconds, because it's been up on t- in the Twitter discourse, the pit bull question. I think Dmitry had one more update from the world of Russian cinema. Yeah, we um, we were all praying for the Orthodox Christian, probably the most famous Orthodox Christian director at the moment uh, in the world, Nikita Mikhalkov, who is a Russian movie director. Um, his father, um, Sergei Mikhalkov, was famous for actually writing the words, the lyrics for the Soviet as well as the Russian Federation's national anthem. So his father actually... Um, wrote the lyrics to both the national anthems, which, of course, people like. They're saying, well, the Soviet national anthem is so powerful, and the modern Russian an- anthem is just great. But yeah, so the son of that, of Sergei Mikhalkov, Nikita, Nikita has filmed many great movies in, in Russian cinema since the 90s, 90s, early 2000s. Some of the films are pretty cringe, but others are actually, actually great, especially the war films. Um, they're really patriotic. So he does... It's really sad that he's actually fallen incredibly ill at the moment. He's in a Russian ICU in Moscow, just recovering. His his lungs are in a really bad state. Some say it's maybe due to his uh, COVID illness. Others say it's, well, he is quite elderly at this point. He is in his 70s, late 70s. So we're not too sure if he'll recover or not, but we are praying for him. And Nikita Mikhalkov has always been uh, a son of the Orthodox Church. He's always been loyal. He's had, he's spoken very fondly. He always promoted Christianity wherever he went, like he... He promotes Russian feast days, Orthodox feast days. He promotes Russian culture, and he's friends with a lot of priests. He even had a YouTube channel at one point, which he stopped posting on in 2022, but he's 
every time he is involved in anything that has to do with Russian culture, he'd always brought Christianity into it, which helped in the desovitization of a Russian culture in a way. So he's kind of helped peel back that layer of atheism, which perpetuated um, the Russian speaking world and brought Christianity back into it through his creative actions. And, and yeah, his, yeah, it's just very sad hearing about him, you know, towards the 20, you know, in this new year, kind of falling incredibly ill. And it's similar in a way to, I would say a lot of people who've passed last year, like, you know, they won't be able to say exactly how this whole conflict ends, this conflict that, you know, encompasses their nation at the moment. And, you know, we're praying for Nikita Mikhalkov. Hopefully he gets better. Oh, agreed. And, you know, as always, we issue everyone to pray for, you know, pray for the war in Ukraine and all the soldiers, pray for the church, pray for those in schism that they would be reunited with the church, all these sorts of things. We want to, you know, be sure to always be in prayer about these things and not just, you know, saying you're in prayer or, you know, not, you know, it's, it's about prayer is powerful. You know, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So we really do believe that, but, you know, maybe before we get into a bit of a light, a serious, but also lighter topic with the pit bull, we're going to get into that. We're eventually also going to start landing the plane here at the end of the episode. I think there's a reference, a few things. There was some, some arson going on from the schismatics. And there's uh, of course here in America, things are getting a bit rough on the home front from a FBI surveillance perspective, but before we get into all that, we want to go on the record here on World War Now. We are anti-pitbull. We, uh, I personally would probably, uh, pitbull buybacks, I believe, would be an appropriate measure. And I believe the eventual, you know, a 10-year plan to ultimately phase out the breed and make sure that we're no longer polluting our wild dog populations with, you know, giga predator DNA, as well as just having, you know, mass baby-killing weapons of war on the street. Of course, you know, like 90% of all... I guess you could call it dog crime or, you know, bites and whatnot are committed by pit bulls. So I, I, of course, I grew up in the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean and pit bulls are banned there. They do have a bit of a wild dog problem. That's a big part of it, as well as just it's a small consolidated place. There's kids walking around. It's just there's no need for you to have a pit bull. And I don't know if we have any pit bull, you know, pit mommies or anything listening. We apologize, but we're not balking on this issue. You can get mad in the comments, but we're. We're anti-pit. That's that's we're making that statement here. Episode fourteen. Yeah, that's right. We're not, a, as you guys probably know, we aren't libertarian. We do believe in certain restrictions on you know things that can harm the community around you. And one of those things, of course, is pit bulls. They seem to just to be perpetuating crime in in a very broad amount, like in, in crime. But by crime, I mean attacking their owners as well as you know innocent people on the streets. And they seem to have a very high degree of agitation when you know there are clips online with you know children touching or accidentally bumping into a pit bull and the pit bull just gets really angry. But none of these anecdotal, you know, clips and, you know, examples, of course, give you the full picture. The full picture, of course, is in the statistics and the statistics are quite damning to the, to the point where it's almost like, well, maybe we should just legalize keeping lions and, you know, massive big cats at home as well, because they seem to be less dangerous than these uh, seemingly smaller dogs at this point, you know. I think just the perspective that, look, if large animals such as bears, lions, you know, tigers require licenses in most countries, at least as a minimum, like pit bulls do need, like you cannot simply keep one just, you know, as a regular dog. It, these things are weapons. And, you know, we, yeah, the discourse has been ongoing on Twitter for quite some time, let's just say. And uh, a lot of people are split on the issue. Some of them take a more libertarian perspective. Me and Conrad, I think we believe that for in order to benefit the community, like you, you don't want to know somebody who was attacked by a pit bull. It's quite bad. Usually the result is never, never nice. I think we're quite staunch on the fact that, look, no to pit bulls and, you know, people should be restricted from keeping them. That's for sure. 
I mean, I would even wager there's more logic to the, you know, perhaps legal capability to own these more luxury animals, a bear, a tiger. I mean, these are these are animals with symbolic power. These are ancient sigils, you know. This is mm-hmm. this is God's creation. A pit bull is yeah. basically some Frankenstein monster of the mind of man to uh to, to like kill other animals and to fight and to engage in disgusting blood sports of the of the gladiatorial variety. So, I think as a society, as a Christian society, we can move beyond that and you know, I think a tactical borzoi deployal, you know, get some get some wolf dogs on there. We can we can have the pit bull problem down in, in five to ten years just with with a bit of initiative. Yeah, one of the more, I suppose, controversial things we've we've said on this podcast in, in the last three months. But with that, I think <laughs> I think we will be wrapping up this uh, episode 14, the second episode of 2023. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Please tune into our um you know, our live Twitter spaces, which happen, and they usually go on for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half, where me and Conrad, of course, talk to all of you guys, answer your questions, just, you know, kick back, a more relaxed sort of setting where, you know, you can kind of interact live and, you know, we'll just chat and see see how you guys are going. No, it's a good time. Twitter spaces are fun. We hope they can get on the freaking desktop because, you know, we want to have, you know, we want to be able to be pulling up stuff and, and, you know, looking at things and sharing in. I want to eventually, hopefully, Elon Musk, if you're listening, we can get Twitter spaces on desktop so we can be on our phones and our computers listening to Twitter spaces. But yeah, before we go, you know, just everyone pray for the church. There's another arson of a gorgeous church in Ukraine burned down by likely schismatic violence. Just, you know, kind of if we can't have it, no one can, which is just, just really unfortunate for someone, I mean, not to be selfish about it, but I would love to go and see some of these beautiful places and Unfortunately, a lot of Orthodox pilgrims may never get to do that. And even more, unfortunately, children of Russia and Ukraine who, you know, their birthright, they won't be able to see some of these beautiful places. And that's coming home in America, too. You know, we have, you know, especially Rokor as well as other parishes. There's unfortunate direct United States and intelligence, you know, observation and surveillance of of Orthodox churches. So be sure to stay vigilant, stay prayerful, and be sure to to pray for our enemies as well, obviously. And uh, hopefully, again, we'll see some... I'm not. I'm not confident of the Republican Congress, but maybe somehow, by the grace of God, we could see some reigning in of this intelligence junta that we're kind of ruled over by here. But yeah, with all that, uh, be sure to follow us on Substack, WorldWarNow.substack.com. We're growing there pretty fast. We love it. We're uh, we're going to be doing. We said it a lot, but we're really in the next two weeks, two about two weeks to a month, we're going to really be uh, honing in on the future of the paid content and the more content. We've got articles coming. We promise. And uh, yeah, with all of that, again, Twitter spaces, follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Follow us on Telegram. Really, we want to get to 1,000 on Telegram. We're at like 800 now. World War Now, Telly. Just search World War Now on Telegram. It should come up. We'll have that all, obviously, in the links below. Follow me on Twitter, GnomeRad. Uh, follow Dimitri on Twitter, Ocanonist. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, the comments are great. We've got a lot of great discussions and some great great minds actually in our Substack comments and our YouTube comments. So feel free to engage in discussion there. Uh, we really appreciate it, but with all that, I'll sign off and uh, I'll leave it to Dimitri to let us go here. Yeah. So make sure to follow us on world war now underscore at Twitter. Oh, Canonist, that is myself, Dimitri Kalyagin on Twitter as well. And Conrad Gnomrad, as well as, uh, you know, of course, subscribe to the Substack. That is of course the main sort of hub that ties all of the other social media together. 
and the World War Now YouTube channel. Feel free to check that out as well. We're going to have possibly a special guest next week, so it won't just be me, me and Conrad. We're going to have somebody else joining in and giving us some very special, probably unique information which you haven't heard about before. So uh, be on the lookout and, of course, interact with us heavily in the Twitter space when it does come up. So, yeah, leave out an hour of your day this week sometime for that. And thank you, everybody, and have a great week. God bless you all.